0: The Behemoth Brewing Company presents the Department of Conversation with Pat Brittenden. Behemoth, give me something hoppy.
1: Gauru koutou Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation brought to you by the Behemoth Brewing Company. Behemoth always loves trying new things and making bigger tasting beers. Uh, you can find out more about Behemoth Brewery by heading to behemothbrewing.co. Dot nz. Good to be back with you again. I know you've been around for the last couple of uh, weeks and probably heard a few conversations around Stuff.co.nz if you're outside of New Zealand. Stuff.co.nz is New Zealand's largest news website, media website in fact in the country. Uh, bigger than any uh, other uh, online news source, bigger than any newspaper, bigger than any radio. Uh, in fact it's the second biggest New Zealand website the only New Zealand website that is bigger is our version of eBay, which is called Trade Me. Now, of course, it's not the second biggest website in the country because of the things like Facebook and Twitter and that kind of thing as well. But as for New Zealand websites, it is the second biggest after trade me and of course the biggest by a long way news website well we've started a partnership with them they are sharing and using our video from here on in if you want to check out stuff.co.nz uh, and the Play Stuff platform which is their video platform you are likely to find some of our videos up there they have started putting them up eventually when i say eventually some stage over the next few days we will have our own dedicated channel there as well. So you'll be able to get our video content through stuff or through the regular places on uh, Facebook and YouTube, our, our normal places, they're gonna stay there as well. Hey, uh, very excited to introduce to you Max Rashbrook. Well, I'm gonna have to introduce him to you. You may know him well. He is a Senior Associate at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University. Uh, he's got a couple of areas of research he's very interested in, including uh, economic inequality and open government. He's been been described as a democracy advocate, he's someone who uh, screams from the rooftops democracy. He tries to find ways to make democracy work better, and um, as you'll hear through this podcast, which is a really interesting one actually, um, a bit a bit shorter for us, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. Uh, you'll hear that he is an eternal optimist as well, optimist in people, an optimist optimist in the system and how it can and could work. And I think as the podcast goes on, I realise more and more that. Maybe I'm not a realist. Maybe I'm a pessimist. (laughs) So it's Max Rashbrook uh, at a Department of Conversation, and uh, yesterday's episode. Um. So Max uh, Rashbrook, your surname is so interesting. Where is your surname from, Rashbrook? Uh,
0: probably originally it comes from a very small village uh, in England, which is called Rushbrook with a U. Um, which will be where my ancestors originally came from uh, some centuries ago.
1: That's the theory, anyway. The theory. It's a, it's a, it's a interesting and unique one. I, I um, I like finding out about people's names. I have a thing about why, why people's names mean what they mean. Like, do we grow into our names? Do our names become who we are, or are our names just a, a series of letters around us which kind of mean nothing? And people, you know, where you kind of you, you you're using it, it. It's like a um. You use a reason to justify something, so you kind of go, well, Patrick means noble man. Yes, he's quite a noble man, so do we fit in with that or how is we?" But anyway, anyway. Mm. Hey, uh, Max, I've seen you written up as a, a democracy advocate, actually in a local paper down here in in the mountain scene a few years ago. You are written up as a democracy advocate. Is that a fair uh, representation of sort of who you are and what you do? Maybe you could give us the 30-second synopsis.
0: Yeah, I guess I've got two main interests in life, well, in my work life. Um, One of them is, yeah, is renewing democracy, um, finding ways for people to participate more in politics and, you know, affect the decisions that that are important to them. Uh, The other one is economic inequality um, and sort of the problems of poverty and the gap between rich and poor. Um, Those are the two things I mostly research. And, of course, they come together in the sense that they're both pretty, Fundamental to how society functions, and they have, and they can have positive or negative interactions with each other.
1: Yeah, I would think that that um, uh, that wealth inequality and democracy would go hand. That'd be sort of almost the other sides of the same coin, because you know historically, on the past, it was the the wealthy landowners that made all the decisions and then there's still a feeling of that now to the disenfranchised and the uh, the poor at the moment who still kind of get kept out of democracy at times. Um, but I guess the question is, do they get kept out or do they keep themselves out? And if they keep themselves out, why?
0: Yeah, really interesting. I mean, there's, there's a quote, one of those apocryphal quotes that supposedly comes from uh u.s judge justice louis Brandeis, where he's supposed to have said we can either have concentrated wealth in this country or we can have democracy we can't have both (laughs) right now as as usual with these things it turns out he said some much less precise like much more (laughs) long-winded version of that but it's a nice summation of what he thought and it's and it's very true and um you know to bring that down to an academic level that the, the sort of the international cross-country comparisons are, are really, really clear that what probably the single biggest suppressor of turnout, and in fact, even people's interest in politics and even their interest in discussing politics is economic inequality. And it's because, a large part of it is because they feel probably rightly that people with wealth not just have more sway about you know, what gets decided, but are actually able to determine what's even on the table for being discussed. You know, so, I mean, I suppose you could say people exclude themselves by not voting, but they're excluding themselves because they feel like they've already been excluded. I guess you could put it that way.
1: Yeah, it's that, It's that, are they, is there a place for them to be, or have they been made to feel, maybe that's the wrong word, feel, it's a bit emotive, that they have no right to be in that place, so they feel like they've been excluded, whereas the... The, if you enter the absolute truth of it is anyone can step into a booth and vote. But if you feel like you're not supposed to, not welcome, you know that's not your bag. Then are you being excluded from external forces? That must be the that must be the kind of juxtaposition yeah. of talking about you know democracy and how we what revive it is that the right word renew it?
0: Yeah, yeah, renew it, refresh it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. And if you're living in poverty, it, it's it's there's so many things. I mean, often. You know, people just feel profoundly, I think, overwhelmed or intimidated by the system. They feel like they don't know enough. They probably also feel like even if they do vote, nothing will change. That's a really common feeling. So there's so much going on, I think, for people who who aren't engaging. Um, yeah, and I think absolutely, I mean, the, the, the two things have to go together. I mean, if you, if you don't have a lot of people, if you have a very unequal society, people don't participate. And so their political decisions get weighted towards the interests of the wealthy and society becomes even more unequal and you're on a downward spiral. And for me, the magic thing is to get on with the upward spiral where you reduce inequality, more people participate, decisions then further reduce inequality and so on and so on.
1: I I think it's a... um... A crazy big question. I'm just looking at our time and thinking, oh, you know, we've got 45 minutes to chat. And I was going to say, how to reduce inequality? I mean, you probably can't even answer that question in the 45, <laughs> 45 minutes we've got to have a bit of a chat because it seems like such a massive question. But is, is wealth inequality the underlying um, problem when it comes to I don't, well, what I would call true democracy, sort of one person, one vote, equal representation, or is it just a component of it?
0: I, th- I think it's a huge, it's a huge element of it. Um, and look, I mean, it, it's addressing economic inequality is is really complex. And yeah, you could talk for hours about it. But I think at the same time, I mean, you could do a kind of, you know, sort of top four bullet point kind of, you know, a few things you could do that would really reduce it. I mean, just my very quick list would be, you know, to reduce economic inequality would be... Um, you know, have something like a guaranteed minimum income, so like a really generous benefit for people who need it, you know, something like set set the unemployment benefit at the rate of super, you know, something like that. Um, You know, spread the living wage right throughout the economy, um, fix the housing market, particularly by building a truckload more state houses um, and fund all of that through a wealth tax you know or some kind of tax that ensures that people at the top are actually paying their fair share you know there, there's four quick ideas all really hard to do politically but if you did all of those you would have a profoundly more equal society than the one we have now
1: i watched a um ted talk you did i was, I was thinking um i think it's on your, it's on your twitter feed is it a pinned one on your twitter feed at the moment mm-hmm. um and it seems to be i remember uh cal wilson the comedian when she was on qi she put up the like the banner from the qi website and she kind of went oh this is like this is the coolest banner i've ever been on because qi is quite a you know a cool and big show in the uk wondering if you feel about the same about your ted talk that must be the one sort of banner or the advertising thing that you must be quite chuffed about um that rates above all others perhaps but um (laughs) but i was um i was watching it and a part of your conversation you talked about having faith in other people and i jotted that down as i as i watched it and i thought gosh I mean, again, you talk about um, things like wealth inequality, and you talk about how we, uh, you know, renew democracy. One of the things that seems in this current world today, 2021, the the I'll say the Western world because that's probably that's where I live and that's where I you know, breathe and that's where a lot of my um, views come from and influenced by having faith in other people seems to be probably the hardest thing to do at the moment, whether that other person is my neighbour next door who's got the opposite views to me or a government who we don't trust. That, that If we could get to that faith in other people, maybe that would solve everything, but how do we do that? Yeah, I,
0: I, I think you're right. I mean, we're probably lucky in New Zealand that you know faith in government and I think faith in other people is higher um, than it is in a lot of other Western societies um so we're starting from a slightly better base but yeah you you're you're right it's really and trust is such a precious and difficult thing right it's really easy to lose it uh it's much harder and it's much slower to build it up um but i think for me that's part of you know so all the sort of the all the sort of highfalutin kind of ways of renewing democracy that i talk about most of them involve bringing people together to sort of to meet each other you know, to meet people who disagree with them. Yeah. And so I think the things I talk about sort of are their own, they are the change that we want to see in the world, you know, if that makes sense. You know, like citizens' assemblies or sort of citizen-led, community-led budgeting, they're all processes where you get a whole range of people and they have to come together and you set them up, these forums, so that people have to listen to each other. They have to engage with differing views. They have to engage with the evidence. And in those situations, you know, and it, and I talk about this, all the evidence is that people behave amazingly. You know, people really do listen. They really do shift their views in the right setting.
1: Do you think that, ha- does that happen or does the evidence for that, does it show, does it demonstrate that it happens even when you've got extremist views? And I don't mean extremist like, you know, Taliban, but you know what I mean by extremist political views, like let's say the far right to the far left in the room. Under the right conditions, do we still see that happening? Because I look, I spend a lot of time watching American politics. I know I'm a, I'm a sadist, um, but you know, you look at these people who, no matter what, will follow Trump to the to the ends of time, sort of thing, and then you look at the people on the progressive left, and I don't imagine getting them in the same room under any conditions. You could get them to even move slightly together.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. And I think I mean I do think for starters, you absolutely can and have to exclude some people. You know, my, my vision for we should all come together isn't doesn't mean you have to have a debate with literal Nazis. Yeah. You know, some <laughs> yeah. some you know, some people do unfortunately have to be put outside the pale. Um, but with that caveat, I'll tell you what's really interesting is I mean, some people oppose the sort of stuff I talk about because they say, "Well, actually, group discussion makes people more extreme." You know, the loudest voices dominate; the group becomes more extreme. But what what I and I find this fascinating is that that is only true of unmoderated, unfacilitated group discussion. Right. Okay. Because because then the confident people do hold sway, and people feel intimidated mm-hmm. and they fall into line. But if you have good facilitation. You know you've got a professionally run citizens assembly or whatever there's really good evidence that discussion makes people less extreme in their views and it does pull people towards a sensible consensus common ground so to take your american politics example look i think it's probably a bit of both there's some people who you just have to exclude from that discussion like proper conspiracy theorists QAnon type people who you can just never who would just destroy the tenor of the conversation but within that i think there are still large tranches of trump supporters maybe the ones who aren't like violently racist but have just seen their livelihoods destroyed over the last 30 years and people on the progressive left who i think could have a really good discussion under the right situations and the evidence is that i think that they i think they would and they would find common ground they didn't think they had
1: See, then you've got the situation, and obviously I'm not I'm not trying to um, educate you. For the love of God, nobody think that. Um, but because I've watched your TED talk and done a bit of reading about what you've you know what you think and what you say, uh, and one of your TED talks you were talking about a couple of generations that have gone before. I think there was uh, in Greece and then in the 1800s, 19th century, and talking about. Um, moving through, you know how they ran it, and then that moving into a a, a time now where we can have equal representation on a panel of a hundred people. Um, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but it sounds like what you're saying is get a you know a select part of society together, get them to nut it out in a room, and get that to influence policy. My, my paraphrase is that a fair paraphrase. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Pretty so much, yeah. so
1: if you but if you're saying having like fair representation, then. You're excluding, let's say, the the the, the quote-unquote Nazis or the the far right uh, uh, Trumpists or the the far left, um, I don't know, Antifa's in America, whatever their equivalent of in New Zealand. Then you're still stuck with the situation that who decides in that position, who decides who gets excluded? Because I have this thing with people. I think this is going to sound really. Um, I'm a realist. I noticed you listed yourself as an optimist in that talk as well. I, I kind of consider myself more of a realist. So even though this statement is going to sound very negative. I think typically humans have a base sense of kind of corruption. And I, I caveat that by saying most of the isms we have in the world, whether it's a feminism or whether it's a capitalism or whether it's a socialism, you know, the isms we have, at their purest sense, like their absolute cornerstone for what they are, seem to be okay. Seem to have validity, seem to have logic and reason behind them. But then fucking people get involved and we corrupt it. And so capitalism turns into a, a, a greed. You know, socialism turns into actually the person who runs the country uh, makes it so bad for the, for the poorest, then, then there is, you know, thousands of deaths. You know, whatever it is, we seem to corrupt it. And I just wondered maybe this is a pessimist part of me, or maybe it's a realist with these groups of 100 people. And let me say, I love that idea like really genuinely, I think it's a great idea. But then I take a step back and go, how do we then also do that and have it not be corrupted like all the other isms get corrupted?
0: Mm. Fascinating question. I, bet, I find it so interesting because in a way, uh, your description of corruption sort of flips on the head the normal account of those things, which is that people are fine, but the problem is, is when people get attached to already abstract ideology. Um, you know, and like the critique, one of the valid critiques of socialism, I think, is that, you know, most people are actually sort of quite nice and kind and good to each other. But socialists sort of have this elevated idea of we've got a theory, we know how to build the perfect society. That theory is so important that we're going to run over anybody who stands in our way. And even if we have to send X million people to the gulags, you know, we're so attached to the theory. So I'm interested, Nick, that's how I've conventionally seen that presented.
1: But see, I would say that socialism in its purest is um, more communal and more us being equal and looking after one another. I think the sending people to the gulag is the people getting involved in the purest sense of what that, you know, way of of running the society is. I think the sending to the gulag is, and I'm talking about, I'm, I'm being naive um, and I guess I'm trying to be a bit of oversimplified by going the cornerstone of what those isms are, the purest sense of, of you know, feminism, women are equal to men in every way, purest sense. Some people have taken that in some places, and I'm pleased I'm not anti-feminist, <laughs> trust me, I'm not, but it becomes something different from what it was and in some areas some would say it's become away from its purest sense and it's ugly. Capitalism is an example, you know, the idea that, we all can produce a product and the products that's the best and that sits best in the marketplace will, will be elevated under an even playing surface to be the best one, except we get in and corrupt it and we put our thumb on the scale and we say, this one might be the best, but actually I want to make more profit, so I'm going to put my thumb on the scale. So it's not actually in its purest sense. So I think that the systems, and I'll say, I'll use that word again, in their purest sense, in their initial simple ideology, most of them seem okay i'm not saying a perfect no one you know come at me because i love communism but it's the people who corrupt it and it's because we get into the capitalism we go hey hang on so you telling me if i put my thumb on this guy i can make an extra 10 mil well shitty i'll do that or, or, or whatever it is you know
0: yeah yeah that, that's that's really an interesting point but also at the same time does it does anything have to work perfectly you know, I, d- I don't think it does. No, I don't think and, it can. It no, no, absolutely. So I think that's not a problem. I guess what you want then is, I'm just thinking about this, because I've never thought about this but like, in this way and it's really interesting. I guess what you want is a system that has really strong inbuilt sort of self-correction mechanisms um, against that sort of corruption by humans, if you want to think about it that way and i feel like the sort of stuff i'm talking about does i mean yeah of course look it's imperfect and you know all the kinds of things that i love citizens assemblies citizen-led budgeting of course you know it can go wrong and it can be corrupted but what is central to them and you know what is central i think to you know they 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 are about they represent the core of what democracy is about for me which is people coming together and having to argue the toss with each other and having to come to, you know, some kind of consensus or at least agree to disagree. And in that way, finding the best answers and moving forward. You know, I mean, and the reason I'm an optimist is that I think over the long run, most things get better. You know, I think we generally run the world better than we did, you know, a hundred or a thousand years ago. I mean, climate change is the obvious exception, but actually we understand much more about the damage we do to the planet than we have ever done in the past. or at least we're in a position to, to tackle it. You know, I mean, and why is why is democracy successful? I mean, I, I, someone once said, it's a really nice line, democracies probably don't make any fewer mistakes than autocracies do, but they fix them much quicker. Right. You know, democracy is a learning system. It's the ultimate learning system because everyone gets to have a say and you can bring everyone's ideas together. And so I think because in this things I advocate for, there's this constant interaction of people constantly coming face to face with each other, seeing the evidence, listening to experts, agreeing, disagreeing, changing their position. That's the best sort of feedback mechanism you could hope to find against that sort of corruption that you're talking about, I think.
1: I actually presented to the then Labour Party leadership an idea, almost kind of what you're talking about. Um, It was probably 10 years ago. And I presented them with an idea for sort of a website where the public could get engaged in what was happening in the House. And I said to them, we could fund this, we could do it through whatever the funding agency at the government is so it doesn't become partisan. And we could, you know, have a way of actually getting people, letting people know what's going through the House, what the bills are, and giving them a way to participate and come and get involved in those bills. And of course, uh, it didn't go anywhere. But when, so when I hear you talking about that kind of hundred people, like I'm, I'm on, I'm on board, I'm in. But I'm, but I guess that I don't know. Let's call it pessimistic. I I won't say realistic, uh, realism anymore. Wonders if we've gone beyond that. Um, and you were talking before about when someone's presenting. I think you actually mentioned with the, so like scientific evidence when you were talking about getting people in the room who disagree. I had a, a guest on Professor Stephen Lewandowski. And he's done a lot of research on uh, climate change, and particularly amongst climate change deniers. And he found very clearly, the research, the evidence shows very clearly, that when presented with scientific evidence to these people that contravene their beliefs, they just find another way to get to the same conclusion. It's called He calls it motivated cognition. So a person thinks... You know, climate change is not man-made. It's all natural and yada, yada, yada. And this is why I think that they get shown the evidence why that's not the case. And they just go a different route, but they get to the same conclusion. And the conversation Mm. we had was, um, you know, that could then be applied to other things. The reason that uh, vaccines are dangerous is because there's microchips in them. Well, no, there's not micro. Well, actually it's because of something else. So they get to the same conclusion. And I wonder if we're in a time right now and I, and I, I don't, mean to say this like we'll always be here but i wonder if we're in a time right now where we're you say we're we're running like the world is better now but i wonder if we're moving backwards at the moment from this idea of you know revamping democracy i mean not not to continually talk about america but you know when america sneezes the world catches a cold but it seems that we're going we're going backwards from being able to sit in this room with a hundred people all of different positions and come to some kind of consensus where we maybe were, let's say, 50, 40 years ago?
0: Um, I I think that's true up to a point. But again, I'm optimistic because things look very different in the long view. I mean, yes, you've got an awful lot of people in the last 10, 20 years have become conspiracy theorists. But, I mean, if you roll back 500 years and you think about the absolutely insane stuff that people believed you know, my ancestors in the you know lived in the UK. I mean, the UK spent large chunks of time in the 17th century killing people for being witches. You know, I mean, and we live in an infinitely more enlightened world, even if we even if there's lots of QAnon supporters, we live in an infinitely more enlightened world than that now. Um and on I mean and it's a really good point about motivated reasoning, and that absolutely exists. Um but I think again you have to you have to ask the question, what environment are people being provided with this information in? Um, like the the Twitterverse,
1: okay, the Twitterverse versus a moderated group discussion those two very yeah. different places.
0: <laughs> totally, yeah. totally. I mean, I'll give you another example. Yeah. It's not on a different subject, but it's related. Um, there's a program, it's called uh, Tūtoko Tōiwi, I think, and it's basically the activist group Action Station training people up to go onto facebook and have arguments with people who are expressing racist views in the comments basically and it's a way to try to to try to help shift people out of their racist views but also to try to change the tone of the conversation to show to other people watching on that not everyone you know that these racist views can be challenged And I think what's happened with that program is initially they started out with a sort of you-need-to-combat-these-people kind of approach and it doesn't work very well. And what they've discovered works. It's really hard to do. And, man, I admire people for doing this. What works is you actually have to listen to people first. Yeah. When they're saying these awful racist things, you have to say, I hear you. Obviously, you don't say, I agree with you. But you say, I hear you. I get why you feel angry and frustrated with the world i understand that some really tough things are going on for you and that's what opens the door to then shifting those people at least a little bit out of their racist views and so what that tells you is it just the myth me- the nature of the communication profoundly changes how people respond to it
1: and also the relationship. I mean, the best way to evangelise yeah. is rela- relationally, whether you're trying to convince someone that the All Blacks are the best rugby team in the world, that they should drink Coke, or that this religion is the best. To evangelise your position to someone, you have the biggest impact on that person if you have a relationship with them. The people who do it best are the closest to those people as well. So listening to someone, even if it is isn't a, a Facebook forum, Facebook <laughs> forum um is, is a step towards relationship.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely, totally agree. And also, and I'm not naive about this, I mean, it's, it's terrifying watching people really go down a conspiracy rabbit hole. And what's really saddening is often they won't listen to anyone. You know, some people, at least for some periods of time in their life, are unreachable. I mean, that's the awful thing. i I just think that those people are actually quite a small number even within the sort of the conspiracy theorist world the really hardcore unreachable people is quite a small number of people i think and a lot of people do get out of their conspiracy theories one way or another and you're right often through relationships
1: do you think therefore um there is a problem then you know talking about excluding some people from the conversation because of these extremist views um, I'm, I'm going through a bunch of podcasts at the moment and conversations with people about the, even though it's not proposed yet, but the conversations happening around potentially these new hate speech, law, speech laws. And, you know, we all want to fight against hate speech and hate in general. But I still have a concern is it depends who decides what is hate speech. That's my biggest question is not that do we support hate speech? It's who decides what is hate speech? And are we are we faced with a problem with this this concept of again how do we know where the line is for who we exclude from these conversations and the ones that are just on the edge of it and they're a bit they're a bit you know nutty and extreme but actually they're still valid in society because if you do talk about Trump again you know 70 what was it 77 73 million voters um, and obviously not all of them quote unquote you know Nazis quote unquote um, but But that's a a lot of people that sit on that side of the political spectrum. To then go, where are we going to draw that that line is probably the most important part, in my opinion, part of how do we then have a genuine conversation with the rest.
0: Yeah, and it's a super complex issue, obviously, and I I wrote one of my stuff columns um, recently about the hate speech laws. Um, I mean, I, I think... I'm not an expert on this element of the discussion, but I think surely the key thing is at what point are people making other people feel fundamentally unsafe or like they're second-class citizens. So if you just narrow it down to, you know, who gets to be in the citizens assembly for a moment, without, I don't have a fixed view on this, but you might, if you were doing citizens assembly on climate change maybe you do include the climate change deniers. I mean, they're obviously wrong, but their presence isn't a threat to anyone, I don't
1: think. Sure, yeah, good point.
0: Whereas if you were having a citizens' assembly on the hate speech laws, you can't, I think, include explicit neo-Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they are a threat to other people, either in a real physical sense or because... You know what is the harm in hate speech? It is making people feel like they are unsafe in the public realm. It's like the like the Rwandan thing. You call people cockroaches, and that dehumanizes them, and then you have a genocide. So, you know, I, I think I think there are some clear cases for people who it's absolutely who you have to exclude because they would ruin the discussion for everyone else. I do agree that you know this, to speak to your wider point about hate speech there are some complex and troubling grey areas. But we always draw a line around that, right? I mean, and I'm sure you, you know this. There is no such thing as free speech. Yeah, you know, of course. We, we always rule out kind of speech. You can't disseminate child pornography, thank God. You can't defame people, you know, for good reason. And, and we have hate speech laws on the books already. Mm. It's not a question about do we regulate, it's just a question about how, you know, and could we regulate it better than we do at present.
1: Um, I read a stuff article that you wrote. It was actually in 2015, um, but talking about wealth tax as the way to beat inequality. I was wondering if we were, if we, when we're talking about inequality, that appears to be economic inequality. But are we also talking about, not necessarily with that article, but in general, trying to beat inequality, you know, other forms of it as well? And is the idea if we could wave the magic wand to have a utopian society where we're all equal in all all areas? Like, if you could wave the magic wand, what would you want to see?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a crucial difference, actually, between economic inequality and other kinds of inequality. Most kinds of inequality that people talk about, like you know, inequality between men and women, the stuff that feminism draws attention to, or inequality between Māori and Pākehā, there is quite reasonably a sort of utopian vision that those inequalities might be completely erased, you know, so that Māori might enjoy the same health outcomes as Pākehā, women, you know, might be paid exactly the same as men, you know, or they might suffer no more violence or discrimination than men do. So there's a vision of perfect equality there, even if we realistically think it might be an awful long time before we get there. Economic inequality is really different because mostly people aren't talking about perfect equality being the goal. It's extremely rare that someone would say, "I think everyone should earn the same amount and have exactly the same amount of wealth."
1: Right, have the same house value, have the same car value. No one's saying that. Yeah,
0: yeah, because I, I, I guess because economic inequality comes partly from things that we that are part of our discretionary ethics. You know, how hard do we work? What profession do we choose to pursue? I mean, no one chooses to be female. No one chooses to be Maori. So no one should ever, you know, have a lower status because of those things. Whereas people legitimately say, well, you know, I I think, personally, I think there aren't huge differences between people. I don't think huge differences of income and wealth are justified. But some people do choose to work harder or make a greater contribution. I don't want to see a world where everyone earns exactly the same amount. I just think the differences should be really small, only those that are genuinely based on choices that people make and only within a range so that you know, we live in a world where everyone's got enough for a decent life. So the, the floor is really high and no one has more than they deserve so that the ceiling is relatively low, but there's still a, a difference between those two
1: levels. That um that wealth inequality and these numbers are a few years old now because I remember them from when I was working as a talkback host on ZB, um, but at one stage so let, let's add twenty thousand to it now. But at one stage I think they said about the happiness happiness index and people felt sort of satisfied with their income once they hit about seventy thousand, and then everything after that people didn't like there was an uptick. Of happiness and, and comfort to seventy thousand, and then after that, whether it was a hundred thousand or a million, it didn't make that big a difference in people's lives. That that might be ten years old now, so maybe that's a hundred k now. Um, so when you're talking about um, sort of wealth inequality, the idea of having people at a at some kind of situation or some kind of level where they're ha- happy and safe doesn't seem to be such a massive number, like you know we would think about. It's not we're not talking millions of dollars per person to try and get there,
0: no, although of course at the moment that's all sort of thrown out of whack by the housing market um you know where people really need huge amounts of income now to well even to be able to buy a house and then you know keep up with the mortgage payments um but yeah, in a world where we had a slightly more under control housing market, yeah, I think it would be about in that sort of ballpark because there's definitely diminishing returns and we see this at a a country level as well I mean as countries become wealthier you know initially there's their happiness and their life expectancy increases massively and then you hit a point and New Zealand's well past this point where extra economic growth doesn't lead to you know significant increases in the things that make for a good life. Um, but the problem, of course, is we live in a compet- materially competitive society and people feel like they need more in order to be happy and to do better than other people and to feel good about their lives. And it's, um, you know, I mean, we've been talking about these things for centuries, and, but we as a species don't seem to have got out of that trap of, of thinking that more money will make us happier.
1: Do you have any thoughts around what can be done about the housing market, if anything?
0: Oh, yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I always say with with all these things, everything to do with economic inequality is basically created by politics. Um, You know, just to take another example, people often sort of worry about automation. You know, oh, automation is going to hugely drive inequality. But if you think about, I mean, if if our jobs get taken by robots, um, if we all, for argument's sake, own the robots collectively, like under socialism, then we all get the revenue that comes from them and it doesn't increase inequality. If the robots are all owned by one person, then they get all the revenue from those robots and there's massive inequality. So it's actually the politics, it's the politics of which, you know, determining the ownership of things, not automation that drives inequality. And it's the same thing with the housing market. Yes, there are all these economic forces, But ultimately, it comes down to political decisions. And look, I mean, we're already, we're building masses of houses. Well, we're consenting masses of houses now in New Zealand. We're at close to like a 40 year high, even adjusted for population. Um, The the NPSUD, National Planning Statement, I think it is on urban density, is forcing councils, literally forcing them, just happened where I live in Wellington, to zone more land for housing. I think if we clamp down, we clamped down a bit on speculators and we could clamp down even more, I think, um, loan to income ratios, banning interest-only mortgages. Um, We could have a much stronger government role, building more state houses, doing more like active urban planning to ensure that new housing goes along transport corridors, so it's basically low emissions. I think... You know, I think we're already doing some good things. There's bipartisan support for a lot of them. Um, The Resource Management Act is going to be reformed. I think good things are happening, and I think we'll do more things. The problem is, I mean, I've just started doing some numbers. I do think even on best-case scenario, it might take us 20 years before we get back to what we ought to regard as affordable housing. So there's a generation who are really being done over um i mean that's not a news flash i think everyone knows that's happening already because we've got the problem we let the problem get out of really badly out of hand it will take a long time to fix it but i absolutely think we can fix it i mean it does just come down to politics in the end
1: yeah maybe i am a pessimist (laughs) (laughs) or maybe
0: i'm an over-optimist i mean um that, that's a reasonable accusation
1: i um i i I had a podcast recently with a um financial advisor and he's a bit of a um, expert in the area and I was just like uh, rather than trying to fix an unfixable housing market because one of the big things is supply versus demand and at the moment I mean I live in Dunedin but you know I spent forty years living in auckland the and when I was living in auckland I think there was something like I don't know what the number was, it was a thousand houses a month or a thousand houses a year or whatever it was that needed to be built then to keep up with it. And that was 10 years ago to keep up with the um, demand and the influx of people to Auckland. Um, And it must be, it must be worse now. And like lots of little questions like, so where, where are all these builders? We all know it takes a month to get a builder already just to fix something small. Where are all these builders coming from to actually start building these extra 10,000 houses a year we now need and, I don't know, I just, I, and my, my position was there's parts of Europe especially where the housing market's not an issue because they don't have a culture of owning houses, they have a culture of renting houses. Uh, I think places like Germany and Spain are, are a couple of them, I can, I can look that up if we need to, um, but maybe France as well, maybe, and especially in the urban areas. Uh, and so wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be more realistic to get the government, governments, and because we're talking about future governments, whoever it's going to be, to sort out how to fix up the rental market, which is probably something they can do and probably are starting to do with you know, things like having to have uh, healthy homes and stuff, rather than every government and subsequent government bleating out this thing about how we're going to fix the housing market where my pessimist side says it's actually not fixable.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think there's a lot to be said for making long-term lifetime renting viable and normal and, uh, you know, and a and, and really good option. With, and you're absolutely right, which is the case in Germany. Um, the problem is I'm not sure that, that gets how many problems that gets you away from because um, renters need houses to live in just like people who want to buy them, so you still have to build lots of houses. And that throws you right back into... The, the same problems with sort of fixing the housing market, quote, unquote. And I also know, I think Germany's had quite bad house price inflation um, just in recent years. I think they've caught the disease as well. Um, I mean, and it is, there's a, you know, a very large number of countries affected by it. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you still need to build lots of houses for renters to live in, even if renting is going to be a long-term thing. But I think we're starting to do that. I mean, it's... There's a lot of different figures thrown around for how many houses we're short of as a country. One estimate I've seen is about 80,000 um, across the country. And look, on Wonderful, that's a lot, that's a shortage. But actually, I think last year, for the first time, we built or well, we consented more houses than it was estimated that we needed. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so like 10, again, 10, 20 years of building a few thousand houses a year more than we need. Would actually wind back that deficit again. No magic wand. I'm not saying that that's going to make young people feel great because that's a long time. But again, I do I do think that's that's ultimately fixable. You know,
1: one of the ironies of this whole thing. Uh, I watch quite a lot of those um, television shows where where you know, in America they're fixing up a town by, you know, uh, renovating all these lovely houses. I get caught up in Channel Seventeen, HGTV, quite a bit. Um, and there's this strange irony is that what they're able to do with their housing market and renovations is so inexpensive. Like renovate a whole house for $65,000 where I've been quoted if I want to put a new bathroom in, it's going to cost me fifty for one bathroom sort of thing. Um, but then, of course, the ugly nature of that is that's because there's no money in it. The ugly nature of that is because that's because they're getting paid shit money. And so there's this cycle of they're in a country where people can afford to buy houses, in a situation where people can afford to fix up their houses, but the ugly truth is it's because People aren't earning good money. It's a little bit like the ugly truth of caged eggs. You know, you can get a healthy piece of food and it can be inexpensive, but the ugly ugly story behind it is chickens are suffering in these factory farms and it's disgusting. So I I I watched that the other day and I was like, how the fact, do they do that whole house for sixty-five thousand dollars? And then, of course, I realised, oh well, first they're in a market of three hundred million people, so you know they order a million toilets rather than a thousand, so they're cheaper per capita. But also, the people who are putting up the drywall and stuff are earning next to nothing, and so the cost of cost of uh, labour is where they're saving all their money as well. And it's a strange juxtaposition where we need more houses, want more houses, but it costs so much to get them built how do we then enable people to then afford those houses as well? And this, especially if we're going also towards a living wage where people are going to earn more and therefore pay more in wages, doesn't that mean therefore house prices will then go up again? Now, I'm not saying I'm against a living wage, but talking about how that cycle will actually work.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I, I um, I think the factors that make houses so expensive in New Zealand well, there's a lot of them and again you know i'm not sort of fully an expert on this um i mean i think a lot of it has been around the price of land though as i understand it because you know land has been in constrained supply well i mean you know, and the bigger problem is that i mean how cities have to grow up or out mm-hmm. and for a long time we didn't let them do either <laughs> you know um we didn't free up land either in a sort of a, we didn't free up space to build either vertically or horizontally and i'm much more in favor of building because it's better for the environment um, so i mean i think that's a big part of what drives up the cost um, another one is i think that some of our the markets for importing material into new zealand are not very competitive yeah um, you know i think we could do a lot you know are there basically monopolies or quasi monopolies on importing materials um, that drive up the price but also i think you know, I think you alluded to it, there's a real problem of scale in New Zealand. Mm. You know, there's a, I can't remember, I think it's literally, there's only, probably only a handful of firms in New Zealand who build more than a hundred houses a year. You know, so you're talking about very small firms, mostly very inefficient, don't have the capacity to purchase at scale. You know, they're not getting those those purchasing efficiencies, those economies of scale. They're probably not operating very efficiently. They don't, because they're not building very many homes not learning from their own mistakes very quickly. You know, it's just a small scale, inefficient industry. And I think we really need we need more house builders at scale. And there's probably a role for government in in, you know, really creating a market, for instance, for prefabricated housing, you know, what they're starting to call off site manufacturing. Right, right. You know, really, really amping up the state house build program, do it through prefab, build that market, create it. Get it on its feet basically because governments have been creating markets since the year uh, dot um you know basically the, the government the german government basically sort of built the solar and wind power industry as we know it by investing massively in the 90s and that created the demand and then they learned all the economies to scale and that's partly why we now have really cheap um solar panels so you know you could do that do that for the prefab industry and a bunch of things like that get building at scale and i think you might start to see costs coming down at that point
1: Hey, two very quick last questions for you because I know uh, you have to shoot off. The first one is um, Do you ever have an opportunity to share your thoughts directly with? government um i noticed it was towards the end of last year if i pushed my button and spin off you wrote you know the seven key challenges facing jacinda ardern democratic revival the circular economy good neighborhoods uh, tax avoidance mass redeployment violence against women and public investment i mean that was a it's a great article people should go and find it and read it you know do you ever get a chance to then slip that to jacinda and go here's a help for you
0: um yeah, I mean, I've, I have a degree, I have some contacts with politicians, um, not the Prime Minister herself, sadly, she's a bu- busy woman, hard to get at. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I get I have talks occasionally with, with politicians, with their advisors, with public servants, and, you know, and just, and, and I know that some of those people are reading my columns and stuff as well. So yeah, I mean... But also, it's it's never, you know, you can talk to politicians about your ideas, but they've got millions of different things that they're trying to weigh up. And even if they listen to you, there's no guarantee that your ideas get through the sausage factory of policymaking
1: anyway. Sure. And look, the last question was, and it really came from when I was reading that uh, 2015 Stuff article that you wrote, is I'm wondering in your progression of, you know, uh, being an advocate for democracy and revitalising or renewing democracy, have you changed anything significantly in your position from 10, 15, 20 years ago to where you are today?
0: Oh, um, well, I mean, to be honest 10, 20 years ago I probably didn't even know about most of this stuff um, and so I mean so it's all still, so I'm still learning really, to be honest um, even though I guess I know a fair bit about it Um I suppose one journey I've been on, and we've talked a lot about Sins assemblies um, in this conversation and you know, and there's something that's really attractive about that idea if you get 100 people in a room because there's only 100 of them, they can have this really beautiful discussion with each other. But it's actually a very small number of people who are getting engaged and I guess one of the things I've become more interested in, in the last year or two is are there ways where we can get a much larger number of people, like thousands of people engaged mm. and having really good discussions with each other. And I feel like some of the things like sort of community led budgeting where your local council puts up a bit of money uh, for the for the you know for residents to allocate directly, you know, that gets thousands of people coming along to residence meetings and arguing the toss with each other and making the trade offs about where that money goes. And there's a city in Brazil called Porto Alegre. It's got about a million people, about the same size as Auckland. And they get, you know, like 20, 30, 40,000 people engaged in this community-led budgeting process every year. And so I guess what I've started to become more excited about those because that's really mass, high quality mass participation, not just a small number of people. And that, that feels really exciting to me.
1: Uh, from the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University, Max uh, Rashbrook. Thanks for joining us, man. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you giving us some time. And look, I, hopefully we can uh, do it again in the future because I think we might have just scratched the surface.
0: <laughs> yeah, really happy to. Love the conversation. So nice to talk about these things in greater depth.
1: All right, guys, that's us done and dusted. Episode number 188, as we close in on 200, that is Max Rashbrook, Senior Associate at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University. Big shout out to Behemoth Brewing, who are our sponsors, a Behemoth Brewing company. If you want to find out more about them, you can head to either behemothbrewing.co.nz or or, uh, yeah, the, their character, he's a little monster. His name is Churley. And Churley's Brew Pub is based in Auckland. It's the home of Behemoth Brewing. And you can actually go check them out at churley's.co.nz, churlys. .co.nz. Hey, well, um, we said at the start of the podcast, I won't reiterate it, our new relationship with Stuff.co.nz, uh, which means there's a lot going on at the moment. Uh, the best way for you to stay connected and stay in touch is probably either through my own personal social media channels, which are pretty much all at Pat Brittenden, or come follow us on Facebook. Uh, the D-O-C-N-Z. So go to facebook.com forward slash D-O-C-N-Z and that's another way that you can uh, keep up to date with what's happening, what's going on, who's coming up, who's just been on. We are attempting to put out content every Tuesday and Friday. We haven't quite gotten to the rhythm of that yet and if something is still uh, worthy of getting outside those time periods, we will. An example of that is last weekend we talked to... um, Ian Smith, rugby commentator and former New Zealand cricketer, and obviously we talked to him on Sunday morning after the Saturday night All Blacks Test match. It wouldn't have made sense to hold that over until Tuesday, so we put it out straight away. So uh, Tuesday and Friday is sort of when we're looking at releasing a lot of stuff, but if it warrants it, we will also do stuff Uh, in and around that as well we do also live stream from time to time again if it warrants so if you're interested in uh, finding out more about that again follow us on facebook a really good way to do it or actually head to our youtube channel as well we need a few more likes on the youtube channel we're getting close to the ability to be able to monetize uh so if you felt like it you felt so inclined head or just look us up the department of conversation with pat brittenden on youtube and uh yeah Come subscribe to us. That will be helpful on the YouTube channel as well. All right, team. Stay safe wherever you are in the world. Hug a loved one. Watch something on the telly that makes you laugh. Uh, Wash your hands. And until we see you next time, hooroo.